0: Cholesterol management in primary care is stuck in an LDL rut. Many coronary artery disease patients have normal LDL yet still have disease. What role do lipidologists have in guiding us into the 21st century of total lipid management? Joining me today is Dr. Peter Toth, clinical associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Illinois School of Medicine. Dr. Toth is the Director of Preventive Cardiology at the Sterling Rock Falls Clinic in Sterling, Illinois. He is also the Chief of Medicine and Vice Chief of Cardiovascular Medicine at CGH Medical Center in Sterling, Illinois. Welcome to the show, Dr. Toth. Well, thank you, Larry. I was wondering if we could start with the current NCEP recommendations. If you could go over those and tell me if you think they are really being widely adopted by docs out in the uh, field.
1: Well, that's a really good question, Larry. And when we look at the National Cholesterol Education Program's Adult Treatment Panel Number 3, which was published in June of 2001, this was an extraordinary set of guidelines to help guide clinical decision-making in the management of a broad range of dyslipidemias for both men, women, and people of all racial and ethnic groups. And the guidelines were right down the line evidence-based, and they were promulgated absolutely beautifully. But the problem is that when we look to evaluate how well the guidelines are being applied, there's still a lot of work to be done. And a lot of the difficulty arises from the fact that understanding of the guidelines uh, remains suboptimal, not only here in the United States, but when you look at guidelines that guide clinical decision-making for dyslipidemia in other regions of the world, we come up against the same problem. So are the guidelines too complicated? And I don't think so, because they're actually very clear, very specific. Now, what are some things that NSEP strongly advised us to do? Well, first and foremost, if you look at patients who don't have coronary artery disease or a CHD risk equivalent, they recommended that we perform risk stratification, and the method they chose was the Framingham risk score. Now, the difficulty there is that very few people take the time to perform Framingham risk scoring to help determine what a given patient's lipid target should be. Now, assuming someone does do Framingham risk scoring... LDL cholesterol and non-HDL cholesterol are clearly risk stratified. And by risk stratified, we mean that patients can be categorized as low, moderate, or high risk. And each of these classifications carries with it an LDL and a non-HDL target. Now, if you don't calculate 10-year projected Framingham risk scores, you cannot possibly know what level of risk the patient has and then frequently, the patient is actually misclassified as to what their lipid target should be.
0: As you're talking about Framingham risk calculations, I have done them in the past. I have them in a, in a little PDA that's easy to do. But in my experience and many of my colleagues, the risk factor calculation, it, it misses a lot of people, and specifically a lot of women are put into lower quartiles or quintiles or risk centers, whatever you want to call them, and, and we're missing people with just using Framingham.
1: Well, that is a concern, I think, for some groups, especially for younger women. But if you encounter a patient in whom you strongly feel that risk is being underestimated, that's the beauty of NSEP ATP3 is they do leave room for physician judgment. And let's say a patient who is coming in low on Framingham risk scoring has an elevated CRP. Or let's say that they are markedly obese or they meet criteria for insulin resistance. This clearly increases risk. And even though Framingham risk scoring does not include some of these emerging or other established risk factors, it does color decision making. And you do have some free reign to then make the assumption that given the presence of other Uh, established or emerging risk factors that Framingham does not include, that this escalates risk further and you can treat accordingly. But for the time being, Framingham is what we have. Now, there are other risk measures that are being evaluated, which are including a broader range of risk factors. And we'll see in the next few years how widely these other models of risk estimation are going to be adopted. But in the meantime, Framingham is the risk model that NSEP recommends, and I think we need to go with that.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the other recommendations made by the panel uh, beyond just treating LDL, and and what do you think the role for combination therapy is currently?
1: Well, there's a huge role for combination therapy because, um, as you know, we don't live in an LDL-centric world. I think the majority of practitioners have been very LDL-centric, and to a large degree, this is because we've got LDL licked. Getting LDL down in 90% of patients is very achievable with currently available medications with a very acceptable level of risk. Now, where things get a little trickier is when you talk about helping patients get to their non-HDL goal, which would include dropping triglycerides, and then an even greater challenge is trying to raise their HDL. Now, the designation non-HDL is simply the sum of the total atherogenic lipoprotein burden in serum. It's going to be VLDL plus LDL. It also includes LP little a. And uh, another easy way to calculate that is simply total cholesterol minus HDL, so non-HDL. And it's NCEP's effort to include not only triglycerides, but all classes of atherogenic lipoproteins, so IDL, VLDL. We know that these are also atherogenic, VLDL remnant particles. So getting these down is also very, very important, and NCEP is very clear. In patients with baseline triglycerides that exceed 200, once you achieve your LDL target, the non-HDL that is risk stratified needs to be your secondary priority of therapy, and that's where agents like Fibrates and Niacin come in, Of course, lifestyle modification in patients who manifest hypertriglyceridemia, low HDL. Uh, Many of these patients are going to have metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and lifestyle modification with appropriate aerobic exercise, weight loss, smoking cessation. All of these things are frontline therapy for those patients. And then if lifestyle modification is inadequate to help these patients achieve their comprehensive lipid targets, then either monotherapy with single agent or combination therapy needs to be instituted. Now, the issue of HDL is also very difficult because actually it tends to be the one lipoprotein parameter that most people choose to ignore. But we know from any number of studies from epidemiological investigations performed throughout the world that a low HDL, even if it's just isolated low HDL, even with a low LDL, normal triglycerides, does magnify risk. And it is consistently found to be an independent risk factor for future cardiovascular events.
0: Um, do you think that the recent negative trials uh, with torcetrapib have kind of affected uh, providers' views of HDL and of hypothesis?
1: Uh, that's unfortunately probably true that it has colored the thinking of some clinicians But the torcetropid trials did in no way negate the so-called HDL hypothesis, which suggests that it's important to raise HDL because HDL is atheroprotective. HDL, of course, drives reverse cholesterol transport. So unlike other lipoproteins, which are atherogenic, HDL is the great biological mop. It helps to clean up the mess that's left by LDL and VLDL remnant particles. It helps to mobilize intracellular cholesterol from macrophages, foam cells, externalize that cholesterol, and transport it back to the liver. It also has a broad variety of functions in reducing inflammatory tone, decreasing oxidative phenomena, decreasing thrombotic phenomena, and it also exerts a variety of antiproliferative effects within the vessel wall. So NSEP has weighed in on this, but very carefully. They recognize that because people can have a very broad range of response uh, to any given medication, because there are so many different genes and polymorphisms regulating HDL metabolism, unlike with some of the other drugs where you can expect something of a consistent response in, say, LDL reduction or magnitude of triglyceride reduction. With HDL, it's much more variable, and you just can't predict how anyone's going to respond to any given drug. And so in high-risk patients, they do recommend that you make an effort to raise the HDL Uh, But they have not set a target. Some other specialty societies have, such as the American Diabetes Association, which recommends an HDL of greater than 40 in men, greater than 50 in women. The European Consensus Panel on HDL has recommended that in patients who are high risk for future cardiovascular events, that effort be made to raise HDL above 40.
0: We should just simplify everything and make all numbers equal to 60. An LDL of 60, an HDL of 60, a triglyceride of 60.
1: Oh, if only that were attainable. But the wrinkle that the torcetropib trials introduced was that because torcetropib was so effective as a cholesterol ester transfer protein inhibitor at raising serum levels of HDL, and because the trials that have been done, such as Illuminate, Illustrate, Radiance 1, Radiance 2, either showed no benefit in terms of progression or regression of atherosclerosis or uh, it was actually harmful to outcomes by raising mortality, increasing risk for certain cardiovascular events, people, uh, to some degree, uh, have expressed some doubt over whether or not it's not only good, but is it safe to raise HDL? And I think the answer there is torcetropib through a curveball. And the curveball is that if you look at radiance 1, in radiance 1, 9% of the total patient population experienced a greater than 15 millimeters systolic blood pressure elevation. And we know in cardiovascular medicine now that even a 3 over a 2 blood pressure elevation is adequate to increase risk for cardiovascular events. A 15-millimeter mercury elevation systolic blood pressure alone is truly remarkable. And I strongly believe that the torsotropic trials were confounded by this blood pressure elevating effect. And this probably, to a large degree, overwhelmed the benefit that you can see from raising the HDL in radiance 1 they also saw a rise in CRP suggesting increased inflammatory tone uh, and then the other questions become what kind of HDL did torcetrapib produce was it really an efficacious form of HDL that was antiatherogenic or did it produce one of those nasty kinds of HDL as the folks out at UCLA and Jay Heineke out at the University of Washington, St. Louis are finding where HDL, under certain conditions, if people live in a pro-inflammatory state, can actually turn against you and induce atherogenesis to some degree.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit on the the sub- fractionization of HDL, which HDL particles currently are considered the most anti-inflammatory or the most protective ones to have?
1: Well, that's very interesting because there's actually some misconceptions out there about the fractionation of HDL. In fact, under most conditions, and clearly the data by folks like Ben Ansell and Jay Heineke is extremely important But we need to sort out better who has anti-inflammatory and who has pro-inflammatory HDL. We know that there is a significant subgroup of patients with established coronary disease who actually uh, have a significant percentage of pro-inflammatory HDL. But this is still investigational. And so in a practical clinical setting, who do we target for this type of evaluation? Right now the answer is, well, we're not sure.
0: On that note, uh, I'd like to thank our guest very much, Dr. Peter Toth, for joining us today. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you, Larry.